Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call, 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. At Gimme Call, we'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah July. So good evening to you guys. We have... A great show lined up for you. We have not one but two guests coming up this hour, and I am excited uh, to introduce both of them. One of them has been a guest on this program before. We're happy to have him back, um, and he's here to answer some specific questions because, um, as uh, you know, his guest status is super. He uh, he actually listens to the show, and so he heard a, a couple questions, and he said, "Hey, I, I could answer that." Starting out this hour, we're going to start with Josh in Canada. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Uh, hi, Noah. Um, so um, my problem actually has to do with a, a laptop here. Um, I had purchased a, a Dell XPS. Uh, um, well, now it's been a, a year ago. Um, I since um, I put it into a dual boot. Uh, I, I put it to dual boot, but that's not even quite relevant. Um, a dual boot with Ubuntu, but it's not quite relevant here. Uh, eventually, at some point, I got into a, a, a no-post issue. So basically, it won't turn on at all. Um, I, I, looking at some different forums, I found that this is a, a known, what led to this is a known issue that's been resolved with a, a new version with the same model. But um, I'm not really, so I've been having some issues with customer support, which I might ask you about later, but actually the first question is... Go ahead. First question is? Josh? Okay, Josh, I'm going to put you back on hold, and uh, Sarah will pick up, and we'll see if we can get your phone issue sorted out. I think uh, I think your phone is is cutting out there. All right, um, right before we, before I get to the rest of your calls, and I will get to them... Uh, Quite shortly, but I want to introduce a good friend of mine that's joining us on the phone or the program for the first time. I want to read to you just a s- small excerpt of an article. This was published October 11th of 1985. Is it possible to make a $700 mainstream audio power amplifier that sounds exactly like a high press, high priced perfectionist amplifier? Bob Carver of Carver Corporation seemed to think he could, so we challenged him to prove it. The question posed above seems laughable. If it were possible to make an average, moderately priced amplifier sound just like a state-of-the-art amplifier, wouldn't it have already been done? Of course it would. And state-of-the-art sound would thereby become very much affordable, and high-priced power amplifiers would become extinct. Joining us on the program is inventor and uh, owner, uh, previous owner of Sunfire Corporation and Bob Carver, Carver Corporation, Mr. Bob Carver. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Bob, do we have you there? Bob? Well, this is embarrassing. So we don't have Bob. And we lost our other caller. Uh, okay. I'm putting Bob back on hold. Let's see. Uh, let's, do, do, do. let's see here. 
Uh, what do we do? Okay, so let's figure out why. I'm sorry, this is very unprofessional. But you know what, folks? This is live radio. This is what happens when you uh, when you have uh, a show that goes live on the air. Is that you sometimes have to do troubleshooting on the fly. Okay, let's try this again. Let's pick him back up. Bob, can you hear me? Bob cannot hear me. Let's uh, let's do a, um, let's go to Brandon. I'm going to go to Brandon. Brandon, I just want to use you as a test. Can you hear me? And we cannot hear Brandon either. So you guys can hear me, but I cannot hear you. Uh, this is just, this is great. Brandon can hear. Everyone can hear, but I can't hear them. All right, here's what I'm going to have to do. I'm going to have to kill the magic. And uh, what we're going to have to do is I'm going to have to retry to connect my box here. And uh, again, I'm so sorry about this. This is so unprofessional. I feel terrible. Um, but you know what? It, and here's the funny thing. Actually... Part of a uh, part of it is that what you guys can think is you can tell yourself, you can say, hey, you know what? You Noah does a really good job of when everything goes apart. Noah doesn't get flustered. He doesn't freak out. He just he works through the problem and we get there. So that then then everything works. And and he does a great job at uh, at babbling. All right. Let's try Bob. Oh, no, Bob hung up. Let me go back to uh, let me go back to Brandon. I just want to use you as a test. Uh, Brandon, are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, hold on one second. There we go. Brandon, can you hear me? Okay, Brandon can hear me. Okay, so Sarah, uh, if you could go, I'm gonna put I'm gonna put you back on hold, Brandon. And Sarah, if you could get uh, Bob back on the phone, uh, tell him we got our phone worked out, and and offer my sincere apologies uh, from that. Let's go back to Josh. Uh, we were talking with Josh from Canada when the phone cut out there. I'm sorry about that, Josh. So you were saying that um, your question was, how do you replace a BIOS? Is that right? Uh, yes. Can you hear me now? I can. Yeah. Sorry. Was, I think the problem was on my end. Okay. So essentially, Josh, what? So I, I'm. Uh, let's let's walk through this. Let's step through this. So first, have you tried doing just a firmware update? Well, I can't even get into the. I can't get. I can't get anywhere. Basically, you can't get it anywhere. It just doesn't even power on. Okay. Yeah. So that's something and that I confirm. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Well, so basically what that's going to mean is that it's it's that's something that you're going to have to work directly with Dell, but I'll tell you what we'll do for you, Josh. What we'll do is we have uh, we have some contacts in Dell, so let me I'll put you back on hold. We'll have Sarah pick up. She'll take down your particulars. Let me reach out to some of my friends over at Dell and we'll see if we can't get them squared up with you because that just if the machine doesn't even power on, there's there's no way I'm going to be able to to troubleshoot that, especially not in a 5-minute radio call. Okay. Take that whole intro that I just did. Uh, introducing Bob and then apply it right now. Welcome to the program, Bob. You've got to be kidding me. Can you hear me, Bob? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Oh, good. Oh, good. We have, you know how the magic of technology goes, right? Of course. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, I understand that you are at Carverfest right now. Yes. Carverfest. Uh, tell, tell me, did you know that there was a fest in your name, in your honor to talk about your products? Uh, for a long time, yes, but not at first. For the first two years, I did not know it existed. And then they, uh, and then you called them up, right? And you said, "You're like, why is everyone having a, a, a Bob Carver fest, and Bob Carver is not invited?" They said, "Well, we'd love you to come." Yes, exactly. They <laughs> they were hoping that I would come, and uh, they kept calling in, but uh, they never got past the switchboard. I'm pretty well protected uh, sometimes, and so I finally. Um, 
I finally answered the phone, and uh, after that, I've been here every year, and that was about ten years ago. <laughs> I have the I have the secret backdoor key to that <laughs> the switchboard. Uh, so tell me about this, Bob. Tell me about this. Uh, tell me for for those that don't know you, um, tell me tell me the Carver Challenge. Tell me what it was that inspired you to get into uh, consumer electronics, high end amplifiers, stereo systems, home theater, all that. Well, I was always in high end stereo systems. Uh, however. Because my amplifiers weren't very expensive, they, uh, many people thought and held a false belief that in these amplifiers, we get what we pay for. Uh, to some extent, that's true, but not entirely, especially in the world of audio. And uh, when I heard about that and when I felt it, uh, as, as my, my poor little inexpensive amplifier <laughs> I said, wait a minute, guys, I can make my amplifier sound any way you want. And so I challenged them to that. They took the challenge up thinking that, of course, this is a slam dunk. Bob's going to lose this challenge. And the rest is history. It was written up in uh, Stereophiles, as a matter of fact. So, the, so you alluded to it earlier on. You, you went up against this very high-priced, very high-end amplifier and, and made your amplifier sound almost indistinguishable from this you know, model that is, is many, many times the price of your amplifier. And, uh, and sorry, it was a vacuum. Good. Sorry. Uh, yes, it was a, a very expensive vacuum tube amplifier, Conrad Johnson. I believe it was at the time about twelve thousand dollars or something like that. I can't remember exactly. And what was and, your amplifier uh, selling for at the time? I guess, uh, about six hundred dollars. <laughs> Almost an order, an order of magnitude, an order of magnitude less. Yeah, and right. It made it sound again. That's fantastic. So tell me about this. Yeah. You have you have been uh, so so since that time. Since you've made amplifiers, you've then gone on to design, um, you know, home theater uh, processors and and, uh, and and which have you know amplifiers built into them. And of course, uh, you're you're quite famous, quite well known for your subwoofers and your speakers. And uh, I understand that you have a small little subwoofer that can really pack a punch. Tell me about that. Well, it's uh, called. Uh I call it my Marilyn Monroe subwoofer because <laughs> it's very small and very powerful. And the picture I have of it is the iconic photograph of Marilyn Monroe standing over the heater grate uh -huh. with her skirt being blown up by that warm air coming up. And so what I did is I took that picture and put the subwoofer down by her heels, high heels, and the skirt appears to be being blown up by the subwoofer outfit. And, and the, the the point of that was to make sure that people could see how tiny the subwoofer was. The smallest one is about nine inches by nine inches by nine inches, and I call it a high pressure, high back EMF subwoofer. High pressure because the internal box pressures are enormous as a as a consequence of its high output and small size, and the high back EMF stands for high back electromotive force. And it was uh, part of the technology that makes it work. So in, the, in for layman's terms, this idea of it takes a lot of energy to get a semi-truck rolling down the interstate. It doesn't take a lot of energy to necessarily keep it rolling. Is that is that a fair summation of if we were to try to describe it that in 30 is, seconds? That's, that's, 
That's a very fair statement. Absolutely. And so, uh, and so, and having I have stood, I've never done it in a dress. I'll, I'll admit, but I have stood over your subwoofer. In fact, we took the nine Super Junior into uh, in Grand Forks. If you're from the area, the Chester Hall is a very big, uh, very big uh, auditorium. We took Bob's little nine inch subwoofer, and uh, I remember uh, it was it was uh, it was my dad, and, and I think you you might you were that you were either there, or you heard the story secondhand, and um, there was uh, there was a group of guys, and they had their you know their big uh, JBL line arrays. And, uh, and we went to, to set this stuff up and the guy, the guy's kind of looking at me, what is that? I said, oh, that's our sub. That's your what? That, that's our sub. And of course they have these subs that are, you know, they got four guys, one on each corner and they're carrying this thing in. They're like, that guy's going to, he's going to make base with his sub. Look at his little sub. The thing blew the roof off. We had to turn it down. It was so loud. We had to turn the thing down because this little nine inch sub, how many Watts does the, the, the super junior put out? Uh, 2,700 Watts. 37. Yeah. That's the amplifier. The acoustic watt output of the sub itself is about half a watt, which is earth, and more like a one watt, which is earth-shakingly loud in acoustic terms. So we were talking about home theater last week. Uh, we were talking about the the, um, the computer side of it, um, and I was going on. We, we were discussing about ways that you can take uh, – thoughts and ideas and use a little bit of smarts to come up with a cost-effective competitor to very high-end uh, systems. And that's essentially what you've been doing since the 80s, is you're taking, you're taking your brain and applying it in an, in an unconventional way uh, to produce the, the same great results. And one of the ways you've done that well, is... Well, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, one of the ways you've done that is with your ribbon speakers. Now, the ribbon speakers, for those of you who aren't familiar, are these tiny little speakers. They're, the original ones are what, 10 inches, maybe 12 inches tall? Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, and they and 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 what's the power output on those? Uh, 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 the, well, the the ribbons the ribbon speakers do not have an amplifier built in internally. Sorry, so how much power can they take? I should output. say. Yeah. Well, they they put out about one watt, and they can take about two thousand watts. They can take three thousand watts. So, I mean, if you look at other speakers uh, that are capable of taking in three, and that's at eight ohms, right? Uh, it's four ohms, and it's actually about two thousand watts. And it's wow. on speech and music, and it's RMS, root mean square. So wow. they, they can take a lot of power. So, and um, they're almost impossible to blow up simply because they can absorb a lot of power. And two, they have a protection surface that prevents it. And we have tried to blow them up. <laughs> So you have taken that. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough that you can take these tiny little speakers that we can fill an auditorium with. It, well, that wasn't enough. So I understand that now you have built a new speaker, and this speaker is 13 ribbons tall. So it's a Florida-ceiling exactly, speaker. Exactly right. Yeah, so tell me about that, this Florida-ceiling speaker. I like, I, I like power. I like, I like lots of power, and I like overkill, too. But the speaker you're talking about is... Uh, called a line source speaker and it runs from floor to ceiling and it has many drivers in it and the point of this speaker is to have a loudspeaker that has the feeling the sense of going from minus infinity to plus infinity and it does that let's see let me give you an analogy imagine that those 13 drivers that you talked about are candles and the woofer and the, or rather the line source sits on a large mirror that represents the floor. Mm. And if you look down, you'll see candles going all the way down to minus infinity simply because there are two mirrors, one at the top and one at the bottom. Mm. And if you look up, you'll see ribbons, I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, candles going up to plus infinity. And that kind of system makes a sound field that is second to none and allows one to hear 
nuances in the musical reproduction that otherwise are lost. And in the case of the, the, the speakers, the candles are replaced by drivers, and the floor and the ceiling serve the same purpose as the mirror, except with sound. Sure. And that's the, that's the fundamental uh, operating principle that they work so you yourself, you uh, you listen to and you evaluate a lot of these electronics, uh, you know, based on on what they sound like with music. But you know, in the in the high end home theater world, a lot of people are using your speakers. In fact, that's what they're primarily targeted for, right? Is a lot of people are using this in very high end home theater situations. Tell me, I know we've had conversations about this off the air, but tell me a little bit about your preference for two channel versus five point one or seven point one. Um, they're, they're both very valid, and they both can sound just beautiful. Two-channel systems uh, can deliver, in my in my opinion, a slightly better rendition of real acoustic space. The reason it does that is because when we listen to a stereo speaker, a normal set of stereo speakers, uh, we are listening to the world the way we would view the world and see the world if we were... Um, Using using our our eyes and they weren't focused, seeing double. And the reason for that is when we listen to a pair of loudspeakers, each ear hears the the hears each speaker. So it's two two speakers per sound per ear. Two times two is four. So we hear un, an unwanted set of uh, uh, sound images, mm. and that's like double vision. So when you listen to stereo, there's a way to get rid of that. Stereo can get rid of that by something called interaural crosstalk uh, cancellation. And surround sound with multiple speakers cannot do that at all. But with two speakers, if it's done properly, the random phase relationships inside the musical program material will eliminate much of the extra uh, unwanted sound energy. So mm-hmm. it gets rid of or minimizes the double vision aspect of listening. And that's why I like ribbons. The interaural time delay aspect gives rise to a sense of acoustic space and imaging that is second to none that surround sound loudspeakers cannot do. And the downside to ribbons However, is just... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, there are no downsides. Believe it or not, there's no patch and there's really not a downside. Even cost? Oh, of course, because it takes so many of them. It right. does take 13 ribbons. So there's a cost associated with it. Um, just you have to buy lots of ribbons, and the manufacturer has to put lots of ribbons in a large line source enclosure. And in my case, it's an extrusion, the metal long metal extrusion. So yes, cost is a part of it. Now, if you were to take a a 5.1 system or a 7.1 system, and you carefully adjusted, you you had a good ear, you had perfect pitch, you had all these things, and you went in there and you 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 adjusted this perfectly, so all of the all of the sounds are up because you know, and I know you and I were joking about this. The first mistake everyone makes in home theater is they crank up the rear surrounds, they turn them way up because it's so cool to have the sound coming out, you know, from behind you. And then as you get into it, you realize that that actually is a very poor representation of of actual surround sound, and 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 thus becomes distracting. And, and doesn't actually enhance the experience. But if you actually properly tuned a 5.1, 7.1 system, could you uh, could you achieve you know a, a usable acoustic space, or do you still think two channel has a uh, has a leg up? Uh, you you can achieve a beautiful acoustic space with a set of surround sound speakers. However, as you said and hinted at, a two channel version of that would have a leg up on it. It will mm-hmm. sound more realistic. 
because when we listen to listen when we listen to real sounds in the real world, mm-hmm. we hear two arrivals per sound image, mm-hmm. one for each year. That's real life. When we listen to it with a set of speakers, we hear four, as I mentioned before, right. one you know two per speaker per ear. So, and surround sound adds to that problem. It mm-hmm. adds many more arrivals that our ear brain is not really accustomed to listening to, and the sense of realism is degraded. However, it's replaced by a sense of excitement mm-hmm. because there's sound coming everywhere from the top, from the bottom, especially now that Dolby has uh, two speakers in the ceiling, and it's pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in my opinion, and the way I like to listen to music, it gets a little bit tiring after a while. So I love to go back and forth. I love to listen to my surround sound system, especially when I'm playing music. I mean, playing uh, uh, theater uh, videos mm-hmm. and movies. And I listen to my two-channel system when I'm listening to uh, classic rock, when I'm listening to concert music, when I'm listening to orchestral music. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a place and a time for each one of those systems. That makes surround sense. Surround sound can be really spectacular the right tool for the right job. Let me ask you this. When somebody's going out, they're going out to buy uh, a speaker system, be it for music or for uh, a home theater. What do you recommend? Do you recommend people mount the speakers on the wall? Do you recommend that they're on a stand? Do you recommend, I know in-wall speakers are like the latest craze. What do you recommend? Well, the, the best sound occurs when the speakers are pulled away from the, from the side walls. And that's because reflections are, are therefore minimized. And that increases the clarity and the interval time delay aspect of building an acoustic space that's mm-hmm. believable. Mm-hmm. So the best place is to pull the speakers away from the walls, on, on at, le- at least on the front speakers, the one that faced you from the front. The side-firing speakers in a, in a surround sound system uh, can actually be pushed up against the wall or even in the wall. Mm-hmm. And they have to be operated in a very subtle way, not turned up too loud, as you mentioned a minute ago because that does detract from the realism. Sure. So, uh, yeah, it can, they can sound great. Okay. And they do. I, gotta, I have to ask you, there is a new pro- proliferation. A lot of people are replacing their traditional uh, stereo systems with these sound bars that just mount to the bottom of a TV. I, I wanted to get your take on that. What do you think about them? Do you think, that's, you, think that's a, you think you can get pretty decent sound out of these things, or is that just a, is it kind of a gimmick? No, it's not a gimmick, and one can get very nice sound out of them. They use something that uh, that actually gets rid of the extra time delays that I mentioned a moment ago. They, this, the, the array of speakers uh, are designed so that each one of them sends out a cancellation signal to the unwanted one, the, the unwanted sound image that impinges on, let's say you're supposed to listen to a sound image in your left ear. Well, unfortunately, your right ear hears the same sound from that little speaker, mm-hmm. one of the speakers. So one of the other speakers uh, is tasked with sending out a cancellation signal to get rid of that sound. So it gets rid of the double vision aspect of stereo. And in the process, one of those little gimmicky, quote-unquote, they're not really gimmicky at all, uh, can project a set of sound images that exist almost around your head. So they can actually do a nice job of surround sound. Problem is, and this is the only real problem, you have to sit in front of them. Sure. Once you start sitting off to the side, uh, the effect diminishes very rapidly. Sure. And you end, you end up with more of a gimmicky sound. 
That makes sense. You have to sit very close to the center. That makes sense. And as you know, for anyone that's not aware, obviously the ideal speaker position obviously is, is if we're sitting down, then we make a an isosceles triangle, right? From the, the left channel to the right channel to where we're sitting. Exactly. Correct. So I want to talk to you. So, you know, uh, so so that might be a great option then for somebody who, you know, is not does not want to take the time to to set everything up or wire their house or whatever. Just you can put a sound bar up there. And as long as you're sitting, you know, in the center of it, you're again forming that isosceles triangle. You probably have really decent sound. Speaking of really decent sound, I heard you're working on a tube amplifier that's selling and the things are selling like hotcakes for like thirty four grand. Tell me about that. That is an amplifier I designed a long time ago. It's called the Silver Seven, and it, uh, the new one—the new one is uh, has about 900 watts per channel. It's huge. It has 20 output tubes in it. It's painted red, and you can see it if you want to look at it on my website, bobcover. Uh, dot com, and um, it is—it's <laughs> a huge, huge amplifier. It's been updated over the years, but I designed it about 25 years ago or more. And there's still a market. There's still people. And you're building these things now from scratch in, you know, in your, out of your house, right? Well, not out of my house, but out of my uh, laboratory. They're not being built on an assembly line. They're being built in my laboratory. Right. Uh, on, especially in order for anybody that wants one. Okay. Well, yeah, I bet for that for the um, the amount of the amount of work that must go into something like that. So, are there any other projects that you've been working on post Sunfire? You've sold Sunfire now. You're you're uh, you you. I guess you you consult with them, right? But you, that's not your day job anymore. No, I don't consult with them. Uh, I'm retired. Uh, except I still build speakers and amplifiers. I thought I was going to retire a little more than I have, but uh, that was my goal, and it hasn't quite worked out. Yeah, that, that's the, that, that's uh, yeah. we we joke about that, right? From time to time, that like we both have these yeah. ideas, we're gonna we're gonna do this or we're gonna do that, and then it's like time, you know, one commitment after the other comes up, and it's like ah, I just I lose myself, you know. Uh, so, what other projects are you working on? Well, I'm I'm actually working on a new subwoofer that is going to be about six inches by six inches by six inches, and it will put out as much bass as my true subwoofer, which in turn puts out as much bass as a big coffee table subwoofer of the sort that Velodyne used to manufacture. Wow. And um, so that's uh, that's a really interesting project. Its box pressure will be, will be yet again an order of magnitude greater than the true sub, which was an order of magnitude greater than ordinary sub. <laughs> and the, the, you know, the thing you've left out too, but I think it's actually really cool. The, the true sub, it, this is the one that has the little microphone, right? So you put it inside the room, you push a button, and it, it measures the room acoustics and automatically, automatically adjusts itself. That, that's the right one, right? That's the right one. Oh, I like your expression, automatically, magically, or magically, <laughs> how do you say that? Automagically. That was, that was really cool <laughs> yeah, automatically. That's right. I love that. You can steal that. That, that can be your no promo line. Yeah. Do you mind if I steal that expression and make it my own? Not at all. No, you you can you can take it. We'll we'll uh, nobody will ever hear this episode. And it it can all be yours. So I, Bob, I got to tell you, I have been <laughs> I have been telling people. There's a couple of people. They said, you know, we launched this radio show. Um, Back in April, I think it was, and first got on the air. We got all this equipment, and, and we're, I'm setting it up, and I'm doing the best I can. I don't have a terrible ear, um, but it's not, you know, it's not as good as yours. And, and I'm adjusting these things, and I, I sent it back to my producer. I sent it back to the editor of the network, and he, he listens to. Me, he's like, "Yeah, this this doesn't sound quite right, and that isn't quite tweaked." And I'm like, "I got a guy. 
I got to get the next time Bob is here in Grand Forks, he will come to I, and I, I, I volunteered you and I said he'll come to the studio and he will help me adjust all the the, the EQ on the microphone and the compression and all that all that jazz. Uh, we'll even get you a parametric one because I know you like working with the knobs and and, and we'll, we'll get the entire thing completely tuned. I'll have it professionally tuned by Bob Carver himself. <laughs> well, I'm flattered. Yeah, well, but, you uh, you are coming here to work on a, the speaker project, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, I am. And I, I did clear it. I, part of it. Yeah, I, I did clear it with my dad. He says we are allowed to talk about this. So basically what um, my dad goes around and he does a lot of public speaking and he also he, he enjoys singing as a hobby. Uh, and so one of the things he, he did is he, he contacted Bob and he says, you know what? I want to have a PA system, professional custom PA system that, that I bring along, and I, I want it to be as powerful as the line array, but I want it to fit in the trunk of my uh, Toyota. And so Bob says, yeah, we can do that. We can totally do that. We can design this this thing. And so you guys have been exchanging drawings and 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 designs and, and all of these things, and um, that's that, that project is is kind of coming to fruition. I understand that you, you guys have made some progress, and, and so you're coming here. The, the, the cabinets are being built, and then you're going to come and, you know, you know, do your uh, oscilloscope and, and all of your measuring and, and tweaking and stuff and make it sound perfect. Well, I hope so. I hope I can make it sound perfect. And you and your dad, I hope, will be a part of it. And uh, we'll have a, an enjoyable evening. There's nothing more fun than designing speakers and listening to speakers. There you go. Uh, almost nothing more fun. There you go. Well, I tell you what, here's, here's, here's more fun. Is after we get done designing them, then AltaSpeed Technologies becomes the, uh, the, the first and, and exclusive retailer of these custom PA speakers. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, Bob, anything else you want to mention or anything else you want to talk? Any last tips for anyone that's out there that's going to go build a home theater or, or wants to just get in and enjoy the music? Well, no, except do this. Just put it together and enjoy it. And don't be afraid to make changes, to tweak it as, as it were. That's the expression we use. But jump in and be willing to change things, to try different ideas, move the speakers around swap the wires, do all sorts of things, and experiment because that's part of fun. And gradually, uh, almost imperceptibly, the speaker system and the soundstage will improve and get better and better and better. And pretty soon you'll find yourself just blown away with the sound quality that you have as well as the pure aesthetic enjoyment of it. So those are my closing words. And I want to thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, thank you, Bob. We really appreciate it. So it's it's Bob Carver, bobcarver.com, uh, former owner of Sunfire and Carver Corporation. Thanks for coming on the program. We'll get you back in, uh, maybe in studio, actually, when you're here in a couple months real soon. Absolutely. I look forward to it, and I'll see you then. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. We really appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Bob Carver. Again, we have a link in the show notes to the Carver Challenge if you want to read up about uh, what Bob has accomplished. He's truly a fantastic uh, fantastic guy. I'm very fortunate to, to call him my friend, and uh, I, we always have a, a really geeky time anytime he's here. All right, back to your call. Sorry about that, guys. I know you guys have been patiently waiting on hold. We really appreciate it. Uh, let's go to Jim, Virginia. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. I called in last week with the problem of LibreOffice writer not being able to handle user size pages. Yes, sir. We and tried a different distro. Email after the fact, sent you an email after the fact said, hey, you, you fixed it. It was just a matter of uh, using Libre, uh, Linux Mint. But after I installed, I tested with a USB stick, hmm. Linux Mint, uh, not, not Linux Mint, do you... Um, Ubuntu Mate 1710 Beta 1, uh -huh. and it looked great. Installed it, and a couple days later, the same problem cropped up again. 
Really? Really? Yes. Yes. Interesting. All right. Well, I tell you, here's what here's here's the next step, then, Jim. Here's what we're gonna do. I, uh, I again, like I did to the, the first caller today. I'm gonna put you back on hold. We'll take down your particulars. And oh, actually, you have a second question. I'll let you. I'll let you ask that second question. We'll get to that. And then after after that call, then what we'll do is I'll take to have Sarah pick up your particulars, or I'll go back and find that email, and uh, I'll start working behind the scenes, and we'll see if we can't find some resolution. Because once you start getting outside of uh, a distro, then I feel like what we have here is a a, a bug in uh, Libra office and I want to see if we can replicate that bug um, and and we have some people again that we work with and we can try and pass you off that way. Go ahead with your second question though. Okay, the other one's uh, connected tangentially. When I installed uh, Libre uh, uh, Ubuntu Mate 17.10 beta mm-hmm. I did something that I have done with every upgrade to Linux Mint and that is I have my drive separated into three partitions, the root and then a swap and then my, my home partition. And always what I do is I say, okay, uh, you know, go ahead and, and write over the brute. Here's swap, and then I'm assigning this as home, but don't format it. Mm-hmm. Now, it is encrypted, but I always use the same password, so it's always the same encryption. It's the standard default, the EncryptFS, mm-hmm. that comes when you first install an Ubuntu-related uh, distro. Mm-hmm. So I figured uh, I'll install it, do the same thing, won't be an issue. But it was an issue. The system said, eh, you know, I can't really use that. It actually didn't tell me. It just did it. It carved out about a 7-gig space in the first partition and said, well, this is the best I can do. Here's your, your user space. Now, I did it on a machine where it really doesn't matter too much. I can blow away the other partition. But if I'm going to upgrade everything from Linux Mint to uh, uh, Ubuntu Mate, I have other machines where this will happen. And I'm wondering, do I need to unencrypt the drive? Did I miss something? It's a something I, I do each and every time, and I've never had an issue up to this point. So my, well, my initial, my I'm trying. Well, I'm trying to think here, because my initial uh, thought process is um, to tell you to ignore that particular partition, boot into the freshly installed operating system, then and then just go into a nit tab and add the mount command for your your drive where where I'm where I'm pausing to tell you to do that though is how it's going to handle that encryption my assumption would be that upon boot up it's going to see that that drive is encrypted and it's going to prompt you for an encryption password which is probably how it's booting and working now right no since it was part of the installation uh, well at, on the normal linux mint machines it just boots up and the system understands it's encrypted and just reads it accordingly. And like I say, in upgrades, I've never had an issue with that. But you're telling me, but, Joe, I just want to make sure I'm understanding correctly. You're telling me that at no time does it prompt you for the encryption password on, on startup? Not on my Linux Mint systems, no. Really? Because the, the user password is the encryption key. I see. So, Okay. I have, yeah, I guess that, yeah, I guess that, I guess it would. It would just take when, when the, because essentially it's just, it's just that particular user's home folder. I guess that would make sense because the only time it's going to prompt on boot up is going to be if the entire disk is encrypted. It can't actually, it can't, it just, it's loading grub and then it's actually going to decrypt the disk before it boots up. I guess that makes sense. Um, and so, and so, and I know you told me, I'm sorry, I'm trying to follow this, but so basically what's happening now is, when you, you, you set it up to do this and you said it's carving out space, but it's not actually decrypting that drive? 
Apparently, it took something out of the the first or or second partition and made it the home drive, since it couldn't read the uh, couldn't read the uh, partition I had assigned as home, since it was encrypted. It mm. needs it, and it will allow me to unencrypt it. But that's not what I want no. to do now. If it's a matter of just going in and unencrypting it, great. I'll, we can figure out how to do that, and then I can re-encrypt it once the thing is installed. But and it could be that it's just a. Uh, a hiccup in the the beta yet? Mm-hmm. I I've never tried it, so I, I can't. I, I've never replicated that particular scenario. I've gone. I've upgraded encrypted drives before. I have taken drives that partitions that were encrypted, reinstalled, and then uh, and then decrypted those partitions. But I've never done quite exactly what. Uh, you know exactly what you're doing, but I'll, I'll just I'll add that to uh, I'll have Sarah pick up your details and I'll add that to the list and uh, and we'll see if we can't get you some help. And in fact, our, our second guest coming up in just a couple of minutes, he might actually have the answer. He's a pretty smart guy. We'll see. Um, I want to go to Josh, Austin, Texas. Hi, Josh. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, what's up, Noah? Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being here. How can we um, help? I have a question. I have a router that I have Tomato installed on it. Okay. And one of my favorite features about it is the fact that it can, uh, it has like a lot of data collection, like how much bandwidth is used a month, by which devices, and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And up until recently, I was able to uh, output those log files that it keeps to my Raspberry Pi over my network, over my local network. But after I uh, upgraded my Raspberry Pi from Jesse to Stretch, it seems like it, it no longer is able to mount that share uh, via the SIFS client in Tomato. Really? And from what I gathered, it seems like it's something to do with perhaps um, SMB version 1 being disabled in uh, newer versions of uh, Samba, and that oh. Tomato might be kind of behind in terms of what kind of encryption or what kind of authentication it can support. Yeah. So I guess my question is, could it be anything else? Because... I've tried mounting it. I've SSH'd into the router, and I've tried just doing like a regular mount command mm-hmm. to see a little bit more detail rather than using the GUI, and it just gives me a permission denied. Um, but then I'd, I'll roll back to Jesse just to test it out, and it just a regular share just works just fine. Yeah, actually, so I was wondering, could it be anything else, or is that what it is? Yeah, it could be. Samba can be finicky, especially depending on how the config is. But if you if you had it working. If you had it working on 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 one operating, if you had it working on one version of of Debian, and then you upgrade, it's on that it's not going to be a configuration error, or at least very unlikely that it's a configuration error. I've actually run into the exact same problem with them. Uh, what's the name of the uh, Clonezilla? Actually, they, they we I, we run into that problem frequently, and and the newest version of Clonezilla actually I shouldn't say newest; it's been there for a while. But they actually have a thing now when you boot Clonezilla, it actually asks you, do you want to use Samba version one, Samba version two? So and so you can choose what Samba version you want uh, to install. Have, the the quick answer, the quick easy answer here, at least what I would do. Have you tried just upgrading the Tomato system? Well, that's the thing. It's it's already running the newest version of the firmware. Oh. It actually got upgraded back in May, and I've, it's hard to find information on this particular firmware. Just mm-hmm. kind of this specific kind of question, trying to figure out what uh, what might have changed. I think that they might be considering uh, upgrading to allow it to use like SMB version two in the future, but mm-hmm. there's not really an estimated time on that. Uh, is there a way that you could potentially enable SMB version one on newer versions of Samba or does that, is, are they like mm. doing like a hard line? No. 
I, I don't think it's so much a hard a hard line, but you're gonna run into a lot of resistant. You're gonna run into a lot of resistant people because they're trying to push everything forward. And I and I say that be, I don't know specifically about the Debian community, but I know we ran into this hardcore. Uh, like I say, when we're trying to image these machines with Clonezilla, and we weren't able to talk to the their their file server because it was an older version of Samba, and it just trying to get everything to talk backwards was just. I mean, it was just, it was like, it was, I mean, it was just like, like pulling teeth. It was going backwards is a very difficult right. thing to do. You know, one of the great things I like about Debian to begin with though, is that the life cycle is, is so long. And so sitting on, on a, on a slightly older version of Debian, even for a little, even for a little bit, usually not the end of the world. Right. I mean, that's kind of why if you're a Debian user, that's probably why you use it to begin with is because it's so stable. Yeah. Um, I'm just the kind of, person i i mean i run arch as well so like i like to have it all up to date mm. and upgraded i'm fine with you know using jesse but i guess mm. i had one more follow-up question which is sure i didn't i didn't check out super deep into like the ransomware stuff and mm. and at, at what point you're vulnerable and that sort of stuff would running you know jesse with that older version of samba that's still compatible with tomato uh it, it, how vulnerable is it like what is what is dangerous about having that enabled? Is it sitting behind a, a firewall on a LAN? Uh, no. I mean, just whatever Tomato has by default. Nothing really. And it doesn't really face outward to the internet, really. I mean, it's. I could secure that a little bit better, but it's, well, I, is it just the fact that it's facing out to the internet, just period? Yeah, I mean, so walk me through the connections. You've got your cable modem or DSL or whatever, and that's plugged into the Tomato? Yeah, right. And it's just a Cisco 4200. If you know the thing is, like, if it was sitting behind a if it was sitting behind a firewall, if you had, if it was just something that hung off your network, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sweat it. When you have an edge device like that, there's probably no protection, and if there is protection, it probably obscures what the tomato device is doing to begin with. Uh, geez, I don't know. I, I would, I would look. Here's what I would do. If it were me, I would leave that device on the network, even as an edge device, as long as you're getting up to date packages. As soon as you, as soon as they, as soon as you stop getting up to date package, and I'm not, I'm not current enough with Debian. I don't have Debian on any of my systems to know exactly what the what the dates are off the top of my head. When that system starts reaching EOL, I would not leave it sit on that network even for a day. I would, I'd pull it off. I'd go to something else. I would. Uh, I, I, I would find some sort of solution that would not just leave I would not leave an out of date box uh, sitting on, uh, on on my network because that you you run the you run so many so many risks of weird things happening and uh, and it being right there it has no real protection you know right so okay yeah and, well uh, you don't think it could really be anything yeah that permission denied message. Probably just the Samba upgrade. I'd say that's a very likely scenario. I'd be lying to you if I said I haven't found a bazillion and one issues uh, with Samba. Usually it relates to the config, but like I said, if you're competent enough to get that config to work, um, you know, in one version of of Debian, just upgrading the version of Debian unlikely to cause cause a problem. And I will get uh, I will get uh, uh, Brandon's take on it too when I get him, to him in, in just a moment here. Uh, actually, yeah, let's just put him on. Brandon from Red Hat, welcome back to the show. Brandon, how are you? Good. It's good to be back. Yeah, great. So, first question: Do you uh, do you don't happen to know uh, much about Samba? Do you, off the top of your head, and 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 Debian? Uh, I haven't worked in Debian in many years. Yeah, um, it's it's been a very long time, uh, but uh, I don't. It sounds like it might be a problem with the 
the older versions of Samba. Yeah. And um, I stay very far, far, far away from <laughs> older versions of Samba. Yeah, I, I hear you. But it's one of those things where I got to tell you, you know, when you're especially when you're in an enterprise environment and they move half the speed of smell and they've got this this file server that they refuse to do any. I don't know if you remember these old uh, it was uh, what it was called. A, I think it's it was called a snap server and it was made by uh, uh, Qantas or whatever from, you know, years and years and years ago. And they're just they're, they're They weren't budging at all. And it was it was a, it was a real nightmare to try and get all those systems to talk. Anyway, welcome back to the show. I know that you were listening uh, last week, or the week before, and gentleman calls in and he says, I am using Libvirt D like no one Brandon had recommended. And um, one of the things that I ran into is that, uh, you know, VirtualBox has all these really great nifty integration features into my desktop. So it really feels like I'm sitting on metal and I can, I can just click on things. It's very responsive, takes over my whole screen. I have all these menus to attach USB peripherals and stuff like that. And uh, he called and said, why, why don't I get that with Vert Manager? And uh, I had explained, I said, well, Vert Manager is using VNC. And so it's, you know, it's, it's really designed as console access, not so much for desktop use. And Brandon pinged me and he said, hey, you know what? I have uh, I have some other ideas for him and, and how he might be able to accomplish those th same things. So uh, like I said, Brandon always says a welcome invitation on the show. So uh, what would you do, Brandon? Yeah, so the first thing that really caught my, you know, like that really was like, okay. <laughs> um, but the default, and the, by default inside of Libvirt, and specifically in Vert Manager, when you build, when you just say, "I want to build a Windows VM," so you just do new new VM, and uh, you select that you're doing Windows. Uh, by default, uh, it doesn't. It uses uh, the the QEMU mm -hmm. um, drivers for mm -hmm. everything. So that 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 uh, that's really slow. It's not very performant. So that's so like that was one one of the comments that the caller made is that. Um, is that it, it? That it wasn't performing. Mm -hmm. uh, that that was really the one thing that really caught out to me. So, like when you're building a Windows VM in Libvirt, uh, uh, first thing I always do it, in Vert Manager is to change the disk the disk bus. Um, I'm going to put put some stuff together um, uh, for the show notes. Uh, Great. I, hopefully, I can get that done today. Mm -hmm. But basically, under when you go into the disk uh, under uh, the info. Uh, under advanced options, you'll see an option for disk bus. It's probably going to be under. It's going to be IDE. Okay. Like, uh, I've seen this a hundred times. Uh, you need to change that from uh, VertIO to VertIO from IDE to VertIO. Okay. Uh, that's so, really really important. So I'm I'm just I'm and in I'm in Vert Manager. I'm driver on Windows. Brandon, I'm in Vert Manager right now, and I'm under the uh, create a new virtual disk. This is where I selected. Yeah, so it could be under a new virtual disk. Uh, so not under the new virtual disk. So if uh, if you're in like a prompt, it's like if you go into a virtual machine, whether if it's running or not, oh, gotcha. they have the option for console and you have that little I for info. Yeah, gotcha. It's under there. Okay, yep, I'm and there now. If you go into, and if you look at your disk, uh -huh. you can go to vert.io, look at your first disk, you need to go into advanced options. Ah, yeah, here we go. Yep, disk bus, vert, IO, and you're saying that should be IDE. That, no, that should not be IDE. It needs to be I, uh, vert, IO. Okay, gotcha, okay. And that's for Linux guests, that's for Windows guests, that's for BSD guests. Gotcha. That's all guests. And that's also, that's also the same for the NIC. So if, you, if you're looking at the virtual NIC, uh, -huh. uh that should also be vert i o because that's uh using um 
the uh, under Windows, I think it's using. Um, I think it it tops out the the Windows the QME driver for the network card tops out at ten one hundred. Okay, so it's really slow. Uh, uh, the other the other the other thing uh, with uh, with Windows guess is it uh, for video is it defaults uh, usually to the Cir- the Cirrus driver. Okay, um, you need to use the QXL driver. Um, yeah, I've that's seen that. Another very important thing, mm-hmm. and and there there is some new options um, as well uh, for for video and uh, to use Vert IO as well. And what that does is it allows you to pass uh, a partition of your like your dedicated graphics card to the guests. Okay, so, and yeah, I'm I'm in here, and so I'm sorry. So you said uh, so change from uh, 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 so my my discs were Vertio and my network was Vertio. My uh, my video though is it, it, it's set to Cirrus, so that should be uh, QXL. Yeah, QXL. Gotcha. And uh, and I am for display. I mean, like uh, the, your recommendation to use RDP, I have no disagreement with. Mm-hmm. But there is another alternative. Okay, um, and that's using Spice. So Spice is um, kind of, I don't want to say it's like VNC because it's more powerful than VNC, mm-hmm. a lot more powerful than VNC. Uh, it allows you to um, do a lot of the stuff that you can do with a virtual box, like USB passer, mm-hmm. um, be able to pass uh, uh, smart cards, things like that. Um, more information on that, uh, spice-space.org. So uh, Spice is actually the, the default in the latest version of, of Vert Manager, so you don't change it back to VNC. That, that's actually what you'll get. The problem I've run into, and maybe you know how to solve this, is on Windows Guests, it will prompt me for the password to connect to a remote uh, you know, uh, uh, Vert host. Type in the password, hit enter, nothing. Type in the password, hit enter, nothing. Type in the password, hit, it just keeps bouncing. It's like I'm playing a game of ping pong. Yeah, so what, 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 that, what the Spice server is doing is it's actually create, it's generating a password. For you to connect to the uh, uh, to the Spice server, um, mm. so there's probably a we'd have to talk about this uh, more in more detail. Mm-hmm. But if, it, if if it's not getting the password, if it's not uh, the uh, if it's not making the connection correctly, it, it you'll have um, some problems. Okay. And also, uh, on the guest itself, uh, there, and I'll, I'll send you the link. Um, you need to install uh, some drivers. So on the Windows guest itself, uh, the Vertio drivers need to be installed because they're not available. They're not just on the Windows install disk. They okay. Have to, uh, there's a virtual floppy disk. There's also an ID, uh, a CD-ROM, uh, an ISO uh, that you can use to uh, install the drivers at install time. Perfect. Um, and those are all on the Fedora Project website. I'll, I'll, uh, like I said, I'll, send, I'll compile this all together. Great. Uh, so you can toss this in the show notes. That'd be fantastic. That, that was like one of the things that hit that really hit me. I'm like, yeah, with performance issues, that's what I always look for right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Is um, those I, uh, especially with the storage, because that IDE, the IDE um, QE Mu driver is extremely slow because it's just emulating uh, ID than I uh, an IDE bus. Fantastic. Anything else you wanted to mention, Brandon? 
Um, no, that's it. I just wanted to try to answer that gentleman's question um, a bit more, like expand on it beyond uh, uh, a little bit more than than you did. You did a sure. good job. Don't get me wrong. I just want. I just I'm like there's something missing there. Yeah. No. Here's the thing, Brandon. Anytime I can get somebody that knows more about uh, more about a topic than I do, like I said, I said episode one or two. I said I'm going to go out. We will find the industry experts and we will bring them on this program to answer those questions. And uh, and you definitely have a better answer than I do. So Brandon Johnson, he's in the Telegram uh, Ask Noah group. You can be too. Telegram.asknoahshow.com. Thanks so much for coming back on the program, Brandon. We appreciate it. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Okay, uh, we got a couple minutes. Let's bang through some of these. We got Ryan from Portland, Oregon. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi. Hey. Let me take you off for a second. Uh, so, I uh, a friend of mine came to me with a laptop he was having trouble with, and I was looking through it, and it turns out it was a hard drive failing. And so he told me he doesn't really want to sink a lot of money into it. It's a laptop he bought like back in the days of XP. And uh, it, it was a gaming laptop at one point, so it's still got almost useful specifications. Mm-hmm. And so I told, I told him what I could do is create a persistent USB key. And this is something that I've read about. I've honest, I, you know, I feel kind of stupid saying it now, but I haven't actually tried it personally. Mm-hmm. But I read through the Ubuntu wiki, and it looks relatively simple. But do you have any... First of all, do you have any advice going into it? And second of all, what do you think about using like those low pro, excuse me, low profile uh, USB keys for those? Yeah, because it is a laptop. So uh, a couple of things. One is obviously USB performance is never going to be as great as actual disk performance. That said, I have a small little 120 gig uh, SSD. It's called my SSD, and it's actually a M. I think it's an M. True drive that's just in a 3.0 enclosure, uh, and I carry that with me everywhere. As far as actually how to do it, I don't know what the Ubuntu uh, wiki recommends, but I'll tell you how I would do it. I just disconnect the hard drive from my computer. I plug the USB drive, uh, the drive that I want to install in the back, and I plug my install media on the front and just run a normal install, I, but I'm installing to a USB drive. And the Ubuntu installer will let you do that. Uh, and the only thing that I've ever had even a modicum of issue with in doing that is uh, the network interfaces change. That's no big deal. Who cares? But eventually you'll get like, you know, WLW015 or whatever because there's been WLM in 15 zero. different. Yeah. But that's if that doesn't bother you and it never has bothered me, that's exactly what I do. And I would totally do that. And I'll have a link to that, my SSD in the show notes too, if you want to check it out. Oh, thank you. Cool. Thanks for the call. We appreciate it. Let's go to uh, Blue. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Blue. Hey, Noah. Hey, how can we help? Uh, I'm about to be doing a bid on this project, and I've never done this before. I thought you would probably know how to approach it. It's I've never actually even touched SurveyMonkey. I just did it last night to play with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, okay, I'm trying to get more customers, but I'm trying to compete with the, uh, with the uh, big guys. Should I just keep it the base pay or try to uh, get the money because I'm just, I've just literally got the bank up and running with all that I need. Sure. So let me ask you this. What is your, what, how do you come up, what do you mean by base pay? You mean like your ordinarily hourly rate or your monthly rate or? Uh, 
uh, monthly rate. Right now, it's literally I'm shooting myself in my, in the foot. But, but I'm trying to gain customers so I can leave my day job. Mm-hmm. Well. First of all, um, giving away some of your services or dis- heavily discounting them uh, to establish a name for yourself is not a bad idea. Uh, in fact, it's exactly what I would recommend that you do if you were if you're starting an IT business. But the way that we, <clears throat> the way that we, uh, which essentially what you're asking me is, you know, what would I price? Uh, you know, this given thing at, and, and the, the the truth is, I don't care what you price. It doesn't really matter. What matters is you have to look at. Uh, is the, is the cost going to be static or is it going to be ongoing? Once you create the survey, is it just done and then you just provide, you know, you spend 30 seconds and spit out a report and, gener- and send it to the client and say, here's the, here is the results of, of the survey or is it something that's going to require you to or you to pay somebody to sit down and tweak every couple days or every week or something? It's probably how it's going to be run. And it's going to be every three months. The survey will be going out. Probably very little treats because it's funeral homes, homes mm-hmm. heavily in our industry. I I never believe they were this low tech, mm-hmm. and they're they're finally getting out of the woodwork. I, I guess my I guess here, here's here's my point. My point is if you're only doing if you're only touching the thing once every three months. And you said they're paying, you know, a couple hundred bucks to to, ma- to maintain this, or paying you a couple hundred dollars to maintain it. That is easy, easy, easy money because you set up the survey once, you touch it every every couple months, you send them the results or whatever, and they want you to modify a question or pull a question or add one. It takes you just a couple of minutes. Um, I don't really see a downside to doing that. I will tell you that from the other side of having done this business for you know almost ten years, I will tell you that selling that kind of service. Once, as you know, eventually what's going to happen is they hire somebody that is, you know, that is a little more tech savvy. And if they look up and go, yeah, we've been paying this guy, you know, 300 bucks or 400 bucks or whatever it is you're charging them for uh, for the last four, three years to uh, to send the survey out. And somebody goes, well, I could go to Google Forms and he's just clicking the button here and, and sending this link out. Um, you know, you, you, you want to evaluate that a little bit, you know, if they're if they're a good client otherwise and they, you know, they've got um, they've got money, you know. You, you're making money off of them in in other ways, then you'd want to look and say, okay, well, I value this client and I, and I value their business, and I I want to make sure that um, I want to make sure that that I maintain a good relationship with them. You know, that's something to consider. Now, I've had clients. Uh, I'll be very honest with you. I've had clients where I I don't particularly like uh, uh, working with them, and so yeah, the price does go up either because they're they're unpleasant people or they make you know very outrageous demands. And uh, yeah, we'll do the work. We've never lost a client, um, but you're going to pay more. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, if you don't want to be doing surveys, I would, uh, if, if somebody wants you to do that survey, you say, yeah, listen, man, I'll do it. But you know, the price is going up. Um, James is calling from Idaho. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah show. Hey, uh, Noah. Hi, sir. How can we help? Um, uh, sir, for dozen, uh, the only way to get your show, but the little browser doesn't like the live feed on you know what, station, <laughs> JB. Okay. Is there any way I can fix it on my side? Yeah, yeah, there sure is. We have a couple different options. Uh, have you tried the YouTube stream? Uh, the, the, 
There should be something at the bottom of the page. I'm going to try to bring that up. No, nope, nope, there's nothing. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything at the bottom of the page, James. I think it's just you have to go onto YouTube and 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 uh, and search for Jupiter Broadcasting, and then it'll say, you know, Jupiter Broadcasting is live with the Ask Noah Show, and you can watch it that way. Oh, oh, okay. That, well, that way I like the 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 search browser because it comes up like a um, an application and it's nice and clean. And so I made a quick link to your um, show. You know how that works. And went, okay, everything works except for the live. And I was like, dang, maybe Great. there's a quick I don't, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, James, but I got music playing in my ear. You're listening to Logos Radio on KEQQ 88.3 Grand Fort.